You're listening to Drinking on the Job, D-O-T-J. I'm your host, John Coyle. Drinking on the Job is a toast to the culture of food, wine, and all things fermented. We'll be talking with winemakers, musicians, artists, late-night bartenders, scoundrels, and more. It's time to grab a glass before its last call. Alice Firing is the matriarch of the natural wine movement. Her book, To Fall in Love, Drink This, offers us a very personal look at her life and the forces that shaped her vision. It's all here, from hanging with Nina Simone to finding wines that you will love. I am both fortunate and probably one of the luckiest wine guys around to have Alice firing on uh, the podcast today. Uh, I've known her a long time, followed her like uh, anyone who's a wine professional or guru. Um, Thank you, Alice, for coming on. Thanks for having me. So um, I want to give people some perspective before we talk about your great new book. Um, In 2001, you got a phone call about these wines that would be made in Napa, basically uh, tricking them out with different additives and chemicals to create these 100-point Parkerized wines. Mm-hmm. And that was the one thing you just kind of made you go, Whoa, this is ridiculous, I have to look into this. And um, it really kind of launched your, I guess, your mission, right? Um, because long after that, you well, not long after it, but you put a book out. But um, well, A little bit long after that, but it yeah. took a while to cook. To cook, oh. right, to, to just stay. Well, but, and but it changed we, my life. That call changed my the direction of my life, for sure. Yeah. I have to, I, I, there's also a very funny, and we'll get to the book, but I just want to say, I think you, you got a call but from Connoisseur Magazine to come out to Long Island to review. Oh, you did read the book. Some long, I, read the, I read the book. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm going to rave about the book when we talk about it. It was an amazing, it is an amazing uh, book. Um, but I was sitting there as a wine guy, Thinking, oh my God, is is she going to write something really fantastic about Long Island Merlot or Cab? Which you know, for me, uh, I've tasted tons, and they should maybe grow Cab Franc and maybe leave the rest alone. But um, I was happy that you couldn't find something really great to write, or because I think actually, if you did, you would have never done what you've done because you would have sold your soul. At the very, very beginning. At the very beginning. Yeah. Well, and if I had found something that I really liked back then, mm-hmm. uh, I would have had a very different palette than the actual one that I do have, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so then you, you wrote the book, um, uh, the, the Parker book, uh, which um, you, you, uh, you, uh, you, how you uh, saved the world from being Parkerized, basically. Yeah. Um, in which, you know, for... Uh, contemporary young people in the wine business or just wine drinkers, they're like, oh, that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. So what? Nobody really listens to Parker anymore. That was a monumental moment in the wine mm-hmm. world where I'm sure, tell what kind of grief did you get? I'm sure you were like the oh hot potato, God. like, no, we don't need to talk to her. Uh, yes, that would be right. The amount of hate mail that I got <laughs> um, uh, back in the day. So that was, yes, yeah, so that was 2008, the bulletin boards were, that's when, in quotes, lovely Alice was coined. Uh, and people bashed me like crazy, uh, um, it, especially in California. A lot of people in Europe, not a whole lot of negative stuff, but right. it was it was published in French and Spanish. 
But uh, it was really in the United States, and especially I felt very unwelcome in Napa. <laughs> right, yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure um, I, I call those wines, they're just so tricked out. I call them the Vegas strippers of wine. Mm-hmm. I lived through that. I always right. was waiting for that to go away. But, I mean, the press about, you know, Alice takes on the biggest name in, in the wine world, Robert Parker. Um, and you were kind of ostracized for a while, I imagine, right I was. That, I lost right? a lot of work. Right. It became very hard to make a living. Mm-hmm. Um I was too hot to handle by a lot of the food magazines. I could write about things other than wine, which back then I still did, and I do enjoy very much. But writing about wine, getting big features, no, that wasn't going to happen for me. Right. (laughs) Uh, When was the last time you were in Napa? Hmm. (laughs) Actually, uh, I was in the city of Napa probably in two. 2018. Okay. For a couple of hours. Okay. <laughs> but I will say your work, partly single-handedly, um, if you look at what California uh, now, like the new California book that came out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's really about exactly what has been your raison d'etre, your, your passion is like wines n- not being manipulated, not high alcohol, uh, no additives, that kind of thing. And all the new wines from coming out of California that are considered great wines are very much following that suit. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, that hasn't really changed all that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so here's a couple things we have in common, okay? Okay. We both wrote plays. Really? Yeah. So I was a playwright. I wrote a play in 1996 called Donkey Bar. Uh, we both ended up in wine. I'm Boston Irish Catholic. You lived in Boston. Mm-hmm. I believe you dated the only Boston Irish guy that didn't drink. Yes, probably. (laughs) And you're the only person other than myself that I know of that describes Ribera del Duero as kind of like a chicken soup. You have one of your descriptors. And when I read that... Chicken soup and dill, yeah. Yeah, when I read that, um, I was like, oh my God, because you know how we all have personal markers for wine? Like one of mine for like Bandol or Muvedra is, it always reminds me when I was a kid... Or when I open up a sneaker box, like brand new sneakers, particularly mm-hmm. pro keds, there's this kind of rubber component. And so, you know, everyone has their personal markers for wine. So when you said the chicken soup thing, I was like, oh, my God, I've never heard that before. Because <laughs> it's one of those personal things you right. you um, uh, kind of uh, just kind of keep to yourself. Um, but I, I appreciate the way you, uh, since from the very beginning, have called out bullshit. Um, there was a wine you talked about in the book that I'm actually now drawing a blank on, but he was a, he was at Discovery Wine, uh, and you went over to, to taste the wines, and I actually went over to taste the wines as well. There was a line around the block, and they made a pet nat. It's the guy who was in a TV show. Right. Right. Um, and I would name if I name. I just can't remember the name. Um, but I thought, like, I was tasting through the wines, and they had a pet nat. So a, a pet a sparkling pet natural. And I, and I was tasting it just... It was clean. It was great. It had bubbles. And I said to the guy, I said, it's so difficult to make pet nats. They're very difficult. I said, can you tell me, like, what you were fighting against? Because I know, like, Donkey and Goat made one, and he said he basically had exploding bottles, mm-hmm. and he had to wear plastic shower curtains when he was making it because it had so much refermentation kind of right. problems. And he just kind of leaned in and said to me, I said, ah, it's really not a pet nat. We just kind of put the CO2 in. Right. And first I was like, wow. And everything was $50, $60 a bottle on the shelf. And I thought, wow, what fucking bullshit. He has no idea who he's talking to. I'm like, okay, whatever. I didn't buy anything. I left. But then later you just blew him out of the water. And right. that's, the, if, yeah. The initials are LL mm-hmm. okay. of the wine <laughs> brand. Right. Um, yeah, it was. 
I got there early just by accident, and they just happened to be there. And I was like, wait a minute, so it's not really a pet knot, right? <laughs> Even though <laughs> they're like, calling it a pet yeah, knot. Right? And I'm like, yeah. that's so cynical. I just yeah. can't believe this. Uh, like, don't you know you can't do that? Yeah, it's, Especially jump. if I'm around. Yeah. <laughs> I'm <laughs> so. surprised they didn't, they didn't catch that one. But yeah, yeah. Uh, I would have took it off the shelf. Um, so uh, let's get to your new book, To Fall in Love, Drink This. Um, I, I have so many mixed emotions reading it. Um, you started off, uh, first, it's a, an incredible book to pick up for the library of wines that you've put together that are spectacular. Um, Thank you for that. And then you just interweave these stories of your personal life um, that are so powerful and, and it just lots of times they kind of parallel your life this personal journey that you were on because you start uh, you, you start with the story of being a 14 year old girl and uh, and this would mean about the personal stuff like my heart was pounding through some of it and then I'd find myself laughing hysterically during part of it but you were a 14 year old girl and you were coming to the city with your dad um, you're, you were raised orthodox Mm -hmm. um, in Long Island. So you come in with your dad. He was having an affair, and which at 14 doesn't really register, but you thought, oh, like, it hey, registered. Dad. Oh, believe did it? Me. Okay. Yeah. Very I guess. much so. Yeah, that's pretty heartbreaking. Uh, but you were like, Dad, you should get your hair cut because apparently that's where his mistress was. But mm -hmm. there's a bookstore that you wanted to go mm -hmm. to. And um, so he says, Great. And you run off to your bookstore and you're looking for uh, The Plague, Albert mm -hmm. Camus, which I was just, when I'm reading it, as what we're going through right now, uh, by the Penguin Classics, cannot keep up with the reprints of that today mm -hmm. in Italy that this issue is just gone because mm -hmm. people want to read about that um, but this older guy is there who hears you asking for it and kind of lures you over to his apartment to take pictures of you mm -hmm. and then you actually go and I'm reading it and Literally, my heart starts to race. I'm like, oh, please, no. Please don't start the book off like this. And I'm like, I was just, it was gut-wrenching. Nothing happened because, only because you were so resourceful to get yourself out of a very bad situation. And I don't want to give too much away because I think people need to read it. And it's just like, holy shit. And the only person back then you talked to, you called your brother. Mm -hmm. And he kind of explained what was going on a little bit. Yeah. But, like, holy shit. I mean, so the, and then you tell this great story about the Chilean producer that you found um, in BOBO, uh, uh, -B -O, I think, or Itata. And, and, and you get this great story about this family. So you weave these beautiful stories of these families. And uh, as you, you said, it takes natural people to make natural wine. Mm -hmm. And then these great stories. And then you get to your personal life. And these a lot of the stories kind of run uh, parallel. And they're so, like, like beautiful. And you, you just bear your soul and your personal life, which is very painful to do. Um, but it also shows you, like... How you you believe that wine is so spiritual and there's something very mystic about it, and you think about it, you're a young girl growing up on Long Island, Orthodox, and like you were supposed to live a very certain life, and man, did you like tear that plan up in that a thousand water, pieces right? and like, lit it on fire and stomped on it, threw it in the garbage. Right. Uh, but it's just such a um, it's such a crazy thing, and I, I love that you your mother's name is Ethel, which I. Such a great name. Ethel, it's like one of those Yeah, old they don't school, make them anymore. <laughs> no, there's Lucy and Ethel, those Ethel Merman, yeah. and there's not many other Ethels. Um, but in, in an effort to explain to your mother, um, you said, how can I explain to my mother my journey to explore the spiritual underpinnings of wine and why cultures live and die for the right to farm and make wine? 
And I thought, I mean, you, you are just an incredible writer. You have such a great way with words, just even, and that translates into your, the way you see wine. It's not a very, even traditional descriptors that you use. Um, but I thought that was so, if I could capsulize this book, it's really what that's about, is mm. trying to explain your spiritual connection and wanting to transmit these ideas that you um, that you have um, about this. So um, the book comes out in August, right? The book comes out August 9th, yes. Yeah, that's so great. So how long did it take you to write it? Oh, this was how long? It seems like it takes me about six months to do a first draft. Mm. And then it's not over till it's over. But the first draft takes about six months, five to six months for me, and then another six months of revisions. Right. Uh, and it was slow. It felt this, I don't know how, I actually usually have it with almost every book. This is my seventh book. That I don't know how I actually did it. Mm -hmm. did, how did I write that? It was not quite this fugue state, but... It's a sense of unreality, like you don't know. Wait, I wrote that sentence, really? It doesn't sound like me. It, I think you're like, you, you. it seemed like from the time you were young, you always had this different feel, right? Um, I mean, we'll get to some olfactory stuff, but like talking about just what a great writer and how it translates to writing. I mean, like, I'm going to tell you some of my favorite descriptions. You you did Savigny, which is a white wine, and you said that the wine is like, it's like a boat ride in ocean spray, a lemon-splashed oyster shell. And then one of my favorite, because you have a bunch of these in the book. I want to go back and rewrite that immediately. <laughs> Do you? I think it's beautiful. This is, so here's my favorite. There was a bunch okay. of them. There's like uh, silvery Chardonnay. You, you, but they really capture your imagination. And it's not the usual raspberry, cherry, baking spice kind I of bullshit. That. I mean, literally, I know wine writers that tell me they, they have the thesaurus out for every red fruit and spice because mm -hmm. when you're reviewing... 50 right. wines, you run out of descriptors. Yeah, my idea of hell. Yeah, yeah. But, but here's my favorite that you did for New East St. George, which is Pinot Noir. You said, deep and sharp with rose petals like a lover's quarrel that ended well. I, I don't know if that's still, you'd like to go back and rewrite that one. I, I, I kind of like that. That, <laughs> that. that rang like a bell to me. I was like, man, I mean, I, I've read your other books. I, this, this, uh, this is a very powerful, it seems like it just flowed. When you're telling me it just flowed out of you, it seems like it was just meant to come out. And you probably wanted to tell your personal story, which there's a lot of that in here, but beautifully woven into uh, our, the wine world, uh, which, which anyone who appreciates just great writing is going to love the book. Anyone who's looking to always find great wine is going to love the, the, the wine list you put together. <laughs> um, but, um, yeah, it's just... Uh, I, you know, it's uh, it's such a crazy, um, it's such a crazy great book. I, I was just uh, um, so moved by it. Um, you're you had a great story about going to Poland that you didn't want to go. You have a friend of yours, mm -hmm. and you went to Poland to um, to review Belvedere, Belvedere vodka a, or write notes on Belvedere. It was back in the days when I sometimes accepted a press trip, mm -hmm. and so did my friend who got me to go on it, because I really had no desire to go to Poland in February, mm -hmm. or actually to revisit Poland where my grandparents came from. So she really wanted to go to Auschwitz, right. and I did not. 
I said, well, if we're going to go to Auschwitz, then we've got to go to Birkenau. Right. And so that's, so we really just took that press trip so we could go to the camps. Jesus. That's, I mean, this part of the book was incredibly moving. And, and I wondered how that would land. I, I struggled over that one. Yeah. I, I, it makes total sense because you start the book. And, and by the way, um, being orthodox has kind of shaped your entire life, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, your grandfather, when you were a, a really young girl, was putting little schnapps bottles underneath your nose to and smell. And perfume, yeah. And perfume bottles, and you still yeah. collected those. Mm-hmm. And you, the olfactory is the most one of the most powerful things that we have, right? I mean, it's our— I believe so. It, I mean, it protects us. We say things like, you know, I smelled fear. You know, or you smell fire, you smell smoke. It's mm-hmm. it's saved us, mm-hmm. I think, uh, uh, many times. But the book is rife with these kind of olfactory moments. When you were um, in the death camp, you were saying, you know, I think Zyklon B smells like almonds, or right. and you were like trying to smell that. Uh, so it just, uh, I mean, that. T- so tell me more about that story. I just, it's crazy to wonder. You were there during the dead of winter, right? So a lot of. And the book is, 50, well, actually 30 essays mm-hmm. and 15 life essays paired with their wine moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so this one, I don't know, well, you basically said it. What do I say? So it is dealing with Poland, going back in February, mm-hmm. being confronted with the past, um, being confronted with the denial of the past, which I found at Belvedere, which was very disturbing to me. And, you know, Melissa and I finally get to Krakow. Now, I wrote this, the first version of the story probably in 2004. Mm-hmm. I never really did anything with it because it was just like a moment. So, should I yeah, give? Please. So, um, so, I'm going to just talk about the story. So, without giving... How do I talk about it without giving everything away? I'll just give everything away. Big deal. Just read the story but, anyway. But also, Alice, there's so many great stories yeah. in it. Okay. That but, like I, that's why I didn't give the John Berger story away. Right, yeah. There's so many great stories yeah. in the book. Yeah. Just uh, this was a, a really moving one. Though. So throughout the whole period of time, I had this was colored by having helped a cousin who passed away a couple of years ago um, write her Holocaust memoir, mm-hmm. and so I was reliving a lot of Sarah's story and how she had been in and out of Warsaw Ghetto, hiding in the walls, in and out of Maidenek, the camp. That was the camp I really wanted to go to, the family camp. But all of this very intimate detail was still with me, riding on the trains, remembering how the horror that she experienced on the trains about being fingered by Polish peasants that were stripping her naked for it was just really horrible so there was no way getting the holocaust experience both melissa and i just could not escape it did you want to do it so you could purge this well i love my friend melissa Mm -hmm. and she wanted to go okay and she wouldn't go without me so i went Mm -hmm. and i also wanted to find out what i was afraid of right uh, I think that was really just, it, it was, maybe I just was afraid to feel what, you know, the history of my ancestors and the relatives that I never knew who, 
you know, were extinguished in the camps. I hadn't, but really the reason I didn't want to go to Auschwitz is that I had done my research and it sounded like a museum. Yeah. And they have no desire to go see a tarted up concentration camp. Yeah, that's crazy. And yeah. that is why I, when I found out that Birkenau, that nothing was there, that's, I said, okay, we're going to go to Auschwitz, but we're going to go to Birkenau. So we go there. It's a gorgeous snowy day. It is exactly what I expected. It was a museum. People were there as if they were picnicking, even though it was frigid out. Right. People were going there for outings. And it was very much about Polish denial. When I was there, I don't know if it was changed, mm. but it had changed. So the the buildings that were dedicated to the to the Jews were locked. <laughs> yeah, they were locked. You couldn't get in. And the only ones that were open were dedicated to the people of Poland, who Polish citizens who had experienced the war and had been in camps. Hmm. And after that, I mean, we go to Birkenau. And the taxi driver is like, why do you want to go there? He said, because there's yeah. nothing there. And so that's just it. There's nothing there. Right. And so there we were. It was February. It started to snow really hard. There, it is exactly as stark as all the pictures that, you know, I was brought up on this stuff. Like every year, there, like in yeshiva, you would see constantly never forgetting the visual images of the Holocaust. And they were all there, and it was right. amazing. And then we said, okay, let's go walk. There was not a soul around. <laughs> and we can go into the barracks unlike Auschwitz, which was totally cleaned up. Right. All the graffiti was there. You know, wow. it was just as if somebody came around after the Russians liberated it and swept it and left everything else. And the chimney from the crematorium was buried in the snow because that had been bombed. And at some point, we can't get out. And it's snowing really like it's whiteout conditions. Can't get and out because you can't find your way we out. We cannot find our way out of the barbed wire. And it was terrifying. Holy shit. And we were getting really cold. And it was getting really dark. And we were terrified. And it was just, you know, it was just this crazy experience as if we were, you know, thrown back decades into that moment. And... We do make it back to Krakow, and that has its own moment. And there are, when I write stories like that, one of the biggest challenges of the book is how do I hook it up with wine? You know, how do you, how do you yes. pair? So this is not a book about, and here is the wine, no. you know, that goes <laughs> no. with this. No, right. this is not. This is an emotional connection to a wine that has an emotional connection for some way to mm. that chapter. Right. And that was one of the at first, I thought, okay, let's write about, you know, Sarah's, of course, her favorite drink was vodka. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and so, originally, I thought that I was going to do a vodka thing, but no, it was Nebbiola. You did Boca. Yeah, right. did Boca. So, I was wondering whether you did that on purpose because you just came out of the camps and this feeling of extinction, trying to, you know, yeah, make these people disappear. And Boca, as you know, is this teeny little appellation that shrunk, that almost mm -hmm. became extinct as well. Right. Um, so I was thinking, was that purpose of purpose? No, not, it wasn't. Like, it was just because that was the wine that we were able to find on a wine list. Right. 
in which we found comfort in at the end of the day. Unlike Warsaw, there, were, there was nothing to drink. There was actually wine in Krakow. But when I was writing this piece about Stefano, who mm. had had a stroke, and it became, and about the, the vines in Boca, if you see them in the winter, they really do look like dancing skeletons. Right. And so, you know, it's the magic of writing where I think, I did, you just don't know. I said, oh, my God, there's that connection. So you get a first draft, and you see the connection. Mm-hmm. And then yeah. you start going back and painting it and making it work. Well, it's, it's interesting because you lay out this emotional landscape, your interior. And then you go, like I said, these beautiful stories about wine in these gorgeous places. And you see there is a connection. And I don't know if you, our minds just in general want to make connections and we search for them. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, you know, like we, earlier we were talking about Camus. And when he did The Stranger, there was a, there's a main character in Stranger called Merceau. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm reading way too much into shit right now. But you, you have uh, these amazing, like, moments that just um just kind of move you uh, and uh, the book i just couldn't stop turning it the turning the pages and i love if we can go back to the beginning of your life when you were looking for to like you immediately thought manischewitz was too sweet and you're like there's got to be something better and then at one point you you i don't know how somebody maybe told you this order but the pope for his wines for the catholics you know he said that he doesn't want any additives and you were thinking like oh wait it's the the Pope gets to drink natural wine, and yeah. and, and the Jews get all this like crappy manischewitz. Yeah. And then, of course, so I was thinking, fair. I was thinking, like, so who is is there a wine buyer for the Vatican? There <laughs> is, is, and I've been trying to get into that cellar. Wow! For for years, I wow. actually gave up. I hear they have an amazing cellar. That, that would make God. Sense. Wouldn't it be amazing? Yeah, to go and like just see what they have. Yeah, yeah. what I, they're buying. Like what's the, what's their table one? I don't want to know that. I know, I know. I think about it when I I would go to church and do the the body of Christ and the wine. I would always taste like a wine. Like, that's a little fortified. But but yeah, I was thinking who is who is the wine buyer? I had uh, Joe Lockhart, who was Clinton's press secretary, on, and when we had uh, uh, wine, I opened uh, some Chateauneuf de Pop, and I said, if there's any place that has seen more problems than uh, than the, the presidential office, it's or the Oval Office. It's been the Vatican, so that's why we drank that. But mm-hmm. um, uh, yeah, it's cool. So, and then you, you're you like, now you're piecing together like, well, there's got to be some good kosher wine out there. I can find it. Mm-hmm. And you do a search for, um, and there really isn't any, no, right? No, there's, there's none. Yeah. And, there, and, there, it, there used to be one. Yeah. Comuna Cellars made a beautiful one, but now they're making cider in Philly. Ah, they went hip. John Luke Valandron. Um, Valandron used to make a wine of uh, a, a line of kosher wines. Mm-hmm. There were there are things one or two Bordeaux houses that yeah, did it, but they, still they, hard they, to find. It's hard to find. I think that there is. You have a greater shot. There are some things that don't come over from France, and uh, there is uh, Richie Harcum who makes wine in Barossa. Mm-hmm. That's about the only one, but it'll happen. Oh. Uh, I used to do, like you used to do wine classes and teach and, and host parties and people call me, hey, can you come? And it was a um, an accounting firm that was an orthodox accounting firm and they would buy nothing but kosher wines. I'm like, but why am I going to be here? And they're like, nobody's drinking it. It's just a show. We buy five cases, we put it in the corner and then we, they would drink like Bordeaux and Burgundy <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and I would sit there and talk about that and I thought, that's cool. That's fine. <laughs> that's cool. That's that's that's, to, that's totally cool. Right. They're they're paying they're paying the um the bills. Um, so 
what was the turning point for you? Uh, like, first we should just get this out of the way. Natural wine. Mm -hmm. Like, it, it, people from every walk of life, either they're like, they ab ab adopt it and it's a religion. They don't care what the wine tastes like. It could be 100% flawed and bad. And they're going, that's fine. That's the way it's supposed to be. Mm -hmm. And then you have people like, I don't even know what natural means. So give us your definition of natural. Natural wine yeah. is, I, I stand by my original statement mm. made from organic viticulture and then nothing added, nothing taken away, except maybe if the winemaker feels they need to, like up to 20 parts per million of sulfur mm -hmm. added. I don't really look into the total stuff. Right. It's just I'm really interested in the additions. Yeah. Um, so we've seen this this category grow where there used to be a time when you couldn't really sell like wines like from Alsace or you were just in Austria, right? Mm -hmm. Austrian, always hard and difficult to sell a certain, other than the, the pedigree wines of Brundelmeier and Hirsch and the wines that everyone knows. But I think natural wine has done a fantastic job of people more are interested in the farming and what's in the bottle than actually where it's from. Do you find that like to be true? I think in your book, you mentioned uh, an Australian producer uh, begins with a V, Viniculus, Viniculus? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Sam Vinicula. Yeah. And then I thought, like, that's what I also loved about the book. I've had those wines, and this has been my feeling that the good thing about this, it's opened the world up. Mm -hmm. um, the wines that most people want to drink uh, or that are parkerized still or galonied, mm -hmm. that's a good word, galonied. Uh, Just triples, yeah. trips off the tongue like that. Yeah. <laughs> um, they're 1% wines. There's only a certain amount of people who can afford these. And the escalating prices of Burgundy right now are just, and Bordeaux, and wines that we used to be able to drink are untouchable. Um, and that's the one thing I find about natural wine, yes. Uh, there's still some of those wines that go up. By yes, the way, they're going up. It's uh, getting really hard to drink. I know. And, but at least you can still find very affordable uh, wines, and I think you and I are probably on the same page. When people ask you a million questions all the time, you know, you go some and they find you in the wine. What's a great wine? Yeah, and I always like, like what's you, your favorite brand? What's your wine? favorite brand? And, and, brand. and do I do you have I to spend like the word brand. eighty dollars <laughs> to buy a bottle of wine? I'm like, right. no. no. You know how much Muscadet I drink? It's like fifteen bucks a bottle, like, or not chocolate. anymore. Yeah, not anymore. But <laughs> a little bit, a little bit more. Yeah, a little bit yeah, more. Yeah. It's like twenty, twenty-two, twenty-three. Um, but I love the fact that, uh, you know, that it has a wider scope uh, to pull from when you're in a, in a wine store now, and it is dominated by this. And you had a very, very big hand um, in this kind of movement. You really are the matriarch. There's a few of them. There's you, and uh, Pascaline was there, but uh, you were there before, but... Yeah. Um, I mean, you were the one to kind of put your foot down. You were the Norma Ray going, no, enough of this bullshit. And it took a while... But I think we're there. I mean, oh yeah, we're we're there. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's happened. People no longer know who Robert Parker is, which I think is a shame because he's very much a part of wine history. Yes, absolutely. He brought a lot of people to the game. Yeah, right. Yeah, and he so. can't be. You know, like I wrote my book in tongue tongue in cheek. I didn't think anybody was going to take it seriously <laughs> or me seriously, and uh, or listen. Right, um, but I felt somebody had to speak up, right. and yes, I was like the Norma Ray. I was, I was the whistleblower. Yeah. Well, you you felt like I think you said like 
that the, you didn't want these wines, these farmers, to go the way of the like uh, the spotted owl or the the woodpecker, mm-hmm. like, and just become extinct as we just started all drinking industrialized wine, and particularly as Americans, because we've seen this growth of like used to buy two buck chuck and Trader Joe wines, and people didn't give a crap what they drank to this kind of uh, conscious elevating time when you know we really appreciate what's in the glass, mm-hmm. right? Um, and and wines to you've talked about a lot in the book is like you know wine is this energy and it's almost uh, mystical uh, and it is spiritual uh, that these wines have this kind of power to like you know change your life. Um, they do, and they absolutely do. It's amazing. I, I get stories all the time about people whose lives really were changed. And I guess mine was, but I mean it really steered my whole career paths in a different direction. But, you know, there's a guy I know who had retired at, went to early retirement at 60 and came across, well, first he read Naked Wine, then went back and read The Battle, totally changed the way he drank, right. got a job, got a passport. And these are major changes. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, and... And other people, I get a lot of notes about that all the time. So lots of times on the show, I'll ask people when they're on, was there a bottle that kind of changed their life? And they're like, I don't know what this is, but the light came streaming through the stained glass window. And they're like, wow. Uh, it, was there a bottle for you that just put, you know, changed? Like, I, I don't know what this is. I gotta, I have to do a deep dive on this stuff. Well, there, there are two. And one is the apocryphal story mm-hmm. of 19. 19- 1968 uh, Giovanni Vino Barolo that I mm. drank in 1980. Mm-hmm. And that was the bottle that showed me that wine was otherworldly. It wasn't yeah. just fun. wasn't just, I like it. I want to drink it. This is interesting. No, this is the one that went, wow. And uh, 1998 Clairoche Blanche Co. That wow. was the other one, where that was the wine that led me down. What is different? What is this? How is this wine made from the others? Because that was when I was realizing that the wines that I was loving was were disappearing. So what makes that so alive? And so that was the yeah. Those are the two wines. Right. Um. You in the book you mention how much you love the Jura. Mm. Uh, can we touch on that just for a little bit because mm-hmm. it's also one of my favorite re- regions now. Kind of well-known, but still under the radar for producers. But what is so special about the Jura? This, hmm, well, to be there, there's, to be there, there's a sense of peace and morality mm-hmm. that is still, it still feels very untouched to me mm-hmm. throughout the whole, from the bustling, <laughs> kidding, like Arbois right. um, or Poligny, Um tiny little towns, you know, where you still see cows walking through the vineyards with their bells. And there's, it's small plots. There's really no really very, you know, maybe in um, Pupillon, there, there's quite a number of vines in one place, but it is all on a tiny scale. Wines struggle to get high alcohol. They have this alpine freshness. There's mm. a very ethereal... The wines speak to me. I love uh, wines with floor. Yeah. So, you know, the salinity, the deepness. 
I very rarely have a mindless wine. What? But also very, you know, the kind of um, deceptive complexity. It first seems simple, and then you go, no, this is actually pretty hmm. profound. Yeah. 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 I'm a... Um, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of the saltiness, and I could be on the Sonoma coast um, and pick it up, or mm-hmm. all, all, anything coastal, Liguria, Vermentino. I'm just, you know, when you put salt and acid together, I'm halfway there, just right. smiling and, and, and grinning. Um, so, Ladive is a very famous uh, festival that happens in the Loire Valley. You've probably been going from the very beginning. Almost. Yeah. And, well, not really. Yeah. It's 2002. Yeah. Okay. That's 20 years. Okay. Yeah. Um, have you been recently? I was a couple of years ago and I was amazed at how it blew up and oh it's just God. a monster of a party. Like, I don't even go now. I'm too old. I'm like, I can't hang with these people. <laughs> I still like to go and taste, but it's become... It has. Yeah. It. it um, but let's see. The last time I went was 2020. I was in France this year, but I decided not to go. Because of COVID. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there was a moment they were thinking about not – they did cancel it because there was a lot of farmers mm-hmm. who weren't going to be vaxxed and didn't care to be. And you're underground in the caves and it's exactly. damp and it's cold. Uh, or hot. Yeah, or hot. Um, so people who are listening, you, you go on a lot of trips. You just get back from Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, – and the wine world is ever-changing, which is what I love about it and why I'm in it because I was curious. Um, what um, – what do you think is happening? What's do does the wine world just continue to? Uh, are we going to move into Georgian wines, which you you write a lot about? Mm-hmm. Um, I think a lot of the Eastern European, because of what we were talking about these prices, is that the next area where we're going to see a lot more wine come into the market? Hmm. Well, I feel Georgian is already there. Mm-hmm. I mean, we can't have that many wines right. come into the market because not many people in Georgia make more than I was going to say 2,000 bottles but Mm -hmm. 2,000 cases that would be a lot Right. so we're not going to see a whole flood Uh, but they're there Mm -hmm. very much there and the quality has risen dramatically really quite beautiful stuff and the price is still pretty decent for the quality of the wine so yeah I think that Georgian wine at least in the major cities have gotten a certain amount of acceptance The trouble is that there is a lot of industrial Georgian wine, and they will be riding the coattails of the natural wine people. Kind of funny in the verse. Yeah, Yeah, I know, but you could say that about Austria, too. I mean, is there all this interest in Austria now because of people like Christian Cheetah? And maybe they're blowing the other people out of the water a little bit. So, And what's happening in, like, Slovakia and Czech Republic, I think pretty exciting. And for the first time, I've had some interesting ones from Hungary. Oh, well. So, this I mean, this is the beauty of, of this, uh, um, the natural wine world, is they've yeah. widened the funnel so much that people just want to drink great wine. It, right. They don't really look where it's from well, right away. Actually, right? I was going to, uh, I would have a correction on that. I mm-hmm. think they do, but yeah. they don't have the prejudice that, hmm, oh, okay. I don't want to drink any Australian wine. Oh, somebody's working naturally in Australia. Somebody's working naturally outside of Bratislava. Like, wow, okay. let's taste it. And so I think that they are very much interested in where the wine is from. But as long as somebody's working well, let's bring it on. Mm-hmm. So there's no, I don't like, I'm 
you have a Chilean wine here. Oh, let's taste it. Sorry. And <laughs> yeah, you have Roberto's wine. So it's um, yeah. Roberto Enriquez, uh, Tierra de Pumas. Cheers. Um, cheers. You know, the end of the show is drinking on the job. I so know. We so always let's drink, let's yeah, drink, on, let's the drink on the job. It's Friday. Thanks. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh. Yeah, so if it weren't for people like Roberto, like, I was ne- I was not interested in Chilean wine. Right. So I knew there was, you know, they knew there was the joint project with Marcel Lapierre and Antoine, um, Anton Van Lut, mm-hmm. um, who Roberto worked with. So I was interested in his wine, but that didn't make me interested in going to Chile. Yeah. So when did I first go to Chile? I... 2018 or 2019? 2018. Uh, just was amazing to see people working like this. And now I love Chilean wine. I do too. I could not have said that 10 years ago. Yeah, I know. And they use like old Rowley barrels and the Pipeno and the, the vines, are d- the raw materials down here are 100 years, 100 year old Pais vines. And they have, you know, uh, Corinto, which is Chasalas, and they have uh, Torrentel, which is kind of, I mean, and totally different model. I was going to Chile 15 years ago and it was all, everyone's trying to make Bordeaux. Right. And they, it was big, huge silos. It was industrial produced. Mm-hmm. And the wines were just like, why are you. There was nothing like this around 15 years ago. And now you're seeing those big houses. The natural wine movement is now like the tail is wagging the dog. Yeah, like in in Italy, there are a lot of people that have their natural, their one or two natural wines. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw that in Austria. And we have that in Chile as well. Yeah. But yeah. some of the winemakers are like, no, that's what the cool kids are doing. Those yeah. are doing really, I want to make wines like that. Yeah. And so they're convincing as those very corporate houses to make some very serious changes. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it's so true. Well, um, the book is fantastic. And it's such a great, like, you basically I call it the wine list um, uh, in it. But we're, we're not going to get out of here without telling your, your Nina Simone story a little bit. Okay. So you got to meet Nina Simone. I did. Um, and uh, the, your stress was about, oh, my God, what is Nina Simone? What I mean, really? Drink? So you're going to, yeah, I was uh, it was probably one of the, as I call it, one of the first, the best first date ever mm-hmm. to go and, like, hang out with Nina before we took her to Symphony Hall. And there was going to be an after party, of course. So what do you bring Nina <laughs> I mean, what kind of wine do you bring to yeah. Nina Simone? My right. God. Right. It was a big stress. Uh, I, also, you have this great story. And I don't want to give uh, – there's so much to the story. But there's this moment, and if you follow her music and you, her career, you said she had this almost crippling stage fright mm. that you were witnessing. Um, and then she just went out and, of course, just takes the house down. Um, After abusing them. Yeah, right. Yeah, by being ridiculously late. Correct. Yeah. But no, also uh, abusing yeah. them. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, I was um, insulting the audience. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Uh, and um, challenging them to hate her. Wow. Which they didn't. Oh. And yeah. she showed a, a fierce vulnerability and mm-hmm. terror and magnificence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was really one of the most incredible moments of my life. Watching her from the backstage, and then she wanted you to be her like <laughs> right. manager or accountant. <laughs> well, account so. yeah. yeah, yes, she wanted me to come and well be her manager, and then no, 
to her books. Right. She should talk to my accountant who's read it. She's like, you know, tear his hair out. Oh, my God. Is this the way you send me your taxes? <laughs> In a plastic bag? Oh, God, uh, yeah. I'm a nightmare. Oh, yeah. Um, but, um, you know, but that's what makes the book so great. There's these beautiful stories of you and your brother, and even the passing of your dad. There's just this wonderful moment. Like, he's, you go through stuff, and you're like, well, we got to go to Burns Steakhouse. We're in Florida because they're the, notorious for having this incredible library of old wines. Right. And your brother's like, what? And you're like, yeah. And I, and I, I th- you know, only you would turn this into your a wonderful wine moment. And you found some, I think, 82. It was 1982. Jabolet um, or yeah, something. Yeah, Jabolet right. th- uh, yeah. And you said it was tired, but you still had a great line about it. You could still, like, hear or feel the power of the sun in the wine. And then, like, like you're writing about wine. You know, it was so beautiful. And then this, then all the personal stories woven in. Um, it was breathtaking. I've, I I told other people I was reading, and they're like, well, I said, you're just going to have to pick it up. It's it's just an incredible um, uh, feat of writing and uh, poetry. I mean, there's like it reads like great poetry. Uh, a lot of the wine descriptors. Um, the stories are so great. Um, and I'm just uh, blessed uh, it drops in August. I'm going to do another promotion for it in August. And, uh, you know, we'll have another another podcast. But um, I have to ask you, we're near the end now. All right. So um, it's uh, your, your last day on the planet. You're blessed. You've, you've given so much joy to people that uh, the Almighty, whoever that is, or whatever, says, you, we're going to give you last day. And pick the meal you want to eat. The bottle of wine you want to drink and this piece of music you will get to listen to as you float off. Huh. This is funny because being the cockeyed pessimist that I am, I thought this is you're gonna die, you know, not you're gonna be given this great send-up. This is your last moment, you're gonna be killed. It's the end of the world. Never did I think it was gonna be this nice thing. Okay. See how great I'm you've still, been? All right, fine. So it doesn't um, have to be apocalyptic. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that I'm gonna change anything. Okay. Yeah. Well, um What would you eat? We'll start oh, there. I would like to call up some Ausley acid because I've never had it, and I'm really curious. What is it? Ausley, you know, uh, Ausley the the guy who like who was famous for making acid in the '60s. Oh, okay. So you're gonna call him up, and well, then he's dead. But uh, somebody must have a tab of or okay. some liquid Ausley acid. Okay, great. you know, this is what electric Kool Aid acid sure. test was yeah, all Ken about. Kesey, yeah, okay. and so, um, so. But you know when because I'm curious and what a beautiful way to to actually push you over the edge to some sort of spirituality. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if but um, also eating, I think probably the most exquisite purple Cherokee tomato with some great salt and a little olive oil oh. and some really 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 good bread. Okay, I love it. Um, and to drink, uh, I would like to re-experience the 2004 Auvernois uh, Sauvignon, okay. which is everything he does other than the Vangelon is non, well, which is oui, um, mm-hmm. but so it's topped off, but 
it is extremely saline and mm. deep, and I want to find out if it's just as profound as I remember it. Okay. I think I'd like to know that. All right. And so what piece of music are you listening to? What came to mind was Incredible String Band, Queen of Love. Queen of Love. Okay. Is there a particular song or just a... Queen of Love is the song. Oh, okay. It goes on forever. <laughs> and especially if I've dropped some acid, I can't think of anything better. <laughs> that is awesome. All right. Uh, so I want people to follow you and uh, to subscribe to The Firing Line. I do too. So give people <laughs> the information. Okay. So on Instagram, it's alice.feiring. The Firing Line is a subscription newsletter that comes into your box about every third week. Mm-hmm. And we're in our 10th year now. We, the Royal We. I am in the 10th year of having done this publication and thought momentarily about going to Substack and then, like, why? Mm-hmm. I have a great database of 10 years' worth of yeah. of tasting notes and and you know, and articles and all sorts of good stuff. So yeah. for for those of you not fortunate enough to travel to Austria and go to the the, the great shows and get in get insider info, it is an amazing uh, source for these incredible tasting notes that we talked about uh, that will make you salivate and want to want to pick these up. And I want to say thank you, Alice, for being on on Drinking on the Job podcast. And uh, go everyone should go pick up the other books. Uh, because those are amazing references as well. But the the, the one that drops in August will uh, uh, make you laugh and smile and salivate and all that Thank good you. stuff. But uh, thanks for being on. Sure. Cheers. Thank you. Cheers. Thanks again for listening. Don't forget to check us out at dotjpodcast.com. Until then, I'll see you at the bar. Creatures of greed. Beg from the thief, I will not carry home your sacks of sorrow, but I will pay the fiddler good silver if he smile and pray God he see tomorrow.